We are in Malachi. For the sake of brevity, I do not have the ability to give you any background information because we're going to learn a lot of Bible tonight. And uh, some of the things you might not like that I have to say, I don't really care. Most of you guys know that. I don't care whether you like what I have to say or not. Um, My job is to teach this book accurately and truthfully. So, Malachi is writing this book. It's 460 B.C. The Persians are in control. And we jump right into Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? How shall we return? That phrase, opening up verse 7, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside, from the days of your fathers, it covers a considerable amount of time. This isn't like they've been turning aside for a few weeks. It's like, not like it's been a bad month. It's been a really long-going process of them turning aside from his statutes. As much as a thousand years. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside. Israel and Judah, they have a long history, like mankind, of disobedience. They have turned aside from my statutes. They've turned aside from the Lord's statutes. And thus the people have turned away from the Lord himself. And we can't divorce his statutes from him. And the American church today likes to do this. Divorce this idea of, well, he's my savior, but me obeying him, that's just kind of optional. And so we separate this and it becomes what's really known today as cheap grace or easy believism, which I don't like. I like lordship salvation. That if he is your savior, he is also your Lord. It's not Savior and then Lord. That's optional. No, it's not. They are together. And so they've turned from his statutes, and thus they've, they've turned from him himself because we cannot divorce this idea that he is Savior, but not really Lord, or Lord just when we want to. As John fourteen fifteen illustrates this idea beautifully, as Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is not optional. And so the people have turned from his statutes. Let me be clear right now. We cannot follow God unless we know what the Bible says. They've turned from his statutes. But we we need to know what the word says. We need to know what, what the Bible says so that we can stay on the path set in front of us. And once again, this is a major problem within the American Christian church today because the American Christian church is so entertainment focused. And oftentimes, that's how we gauge things. What do you think of that church? Yeah, the pastor didn't really tell a whole lot of jokes. He wasn't really that funny. I mean, we we compare them, instead of of the great Bible teachers, we compare them to like a Chris Rock routine or something. That's what we do. How was the band? You know what? It wasn't quite enough Hillsong. Uh, they didn't play Oceans tonight, so yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go back to check out that church again. And so people know that. So churches do exactly that. They give you what you want. You want entertainment? Man, we're going to give you entertainment. I'm going to be more entertaining than anybody else. I'm going to make you laugh. I'm going to make you feel. Not that I'm necessarily even saying false things. And then you find at the end of the service, man, we, did we even open the Bible? Like, we barely even talked about the Bible tonight. That's a major problem within the American church today. Major problem. One of my buddies, he's in here right now, he's like, yeah, I tried this, I tried this church, and uh, 
It was cool, but like the pastor, I didn't even think he like opened the Bible the whole time we were there. Right? And it happens quite a lot. See, we can't follow God's statutes unless we know what God's word says. We need to know what the Bible says. So at Lynchburg City Church, we're all about learning the Bible. I cannot promise you that I will be funny and that I will make you laugh. I probably won't. But I can promise you I will do my best job to exegete, literally pull the truth out from the pages of this book. You don't need to know some funny story. You need to know a Bible story. That's what you need. Like, it was good enough when you were a little kid. Like, it should be good enough today. This book is the most exciting story the world has ever seen or heard of. So I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I just need to tell you what the Bible says. And hopefully do it in a creative, exciting way. That's why I get excited. I get really passionate sometimes when I teach the Bible. I just, I love it. And so they have, back to verse 7, they have turned aside from his statutes. They haven't kept them. And part of the problem is that Judah, they, they failed to recognize that they had strayed from the path. They, they failed to recognize, much like in our own society today. Like all we know is John 3.16 and like, Jesus loves you because we're so biblically illiterate because all we want when we come to church is entertainment. It's all we want. And so the people have strayed from the path and they have failed to recognize that they have done that as we're going to see in a moment. And they noticed, they noticed there was an absence of God's blessing. But they had not noticed the absence of God himself. Their relationship with the Lord had broken down and they failed to recognize or even notice that things were not as they ought to be. And so they say at the end of verse 7, when Malachi is saying, hey, the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you, they ask this question. They say, well, how shall we return? And they do this a lot throughout this book of Malachi. How shall we return? Or in 2.17. How have we wearied him? Or back in 1.6. How have we despised his name? And in each case, Judah's question is not just for information, but it contains elements of complaint and dispute. Here, in verse 7, they say, well, how shall we return? They are essentially saying in a very arrogant way, as the New Living Translation renders it, well, how can we return when we've never gone away? They're questioning, well, why should we need to repent? We haven't done anything. And of course, many of these people might be a little confused because their ancestors experience the Babylonian exile, the release by the Persians, the return, the return and restoration under Zerubbabel, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And so naturally, the people may have thought, return to the Lord? Well, we thought we already did that. we, we got to return to the Lord? And the quick read-through of books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi show that these prophecies of national repentance and spiritual restoration, they haven't yet been fulfilled. And so the people are saying, how shall we return? What, we got to repent? Repent for what? This seems like a good point to talk to you about some, to talk to you about some things that I've recently learned that have been taking place at the church. It's recently come to my attention that there have been some people here at the church who have stolen things from the church. It's recently come to my attention that there are people here who continue to steal from the church. And some of those people are in this room right now. And I feel, as your pastor that I have an obligation to let you know about this. 
as awkward as it may be to point out some of those people who have stolen and who are stealing, who are sitting in here right now, right now to point them out to you. As awkward and uncomfortable as that might be. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you exactly who those people are that have been ripping God off. Verse 8 says this. Will man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. One commentator calls this the economic angle. That is, Israel's attitude, Judah's attitude, Toward and the use of their possessions is an indication of their spiritual health with the Lord. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. And then in verse 9 it says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. In spite of their self-destructive behavior, they continue inviting divine curses upon themselves because they're plundering the storehouses of God. The failure of the people to give God what they owed to God was resulting in His withholding from them what they thought He owed them. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Some of you may wonder why things are not going well in your life. Some of you may wonder why it seems like God has been distant, why He has pulled back His blessings from your life. You may wonder that. Surely the people of Malachi's day did. I'm not saying that just because you're going through some rocky times, it's because you ripped God off. But I'm also not ruling it out because Malachi doesn't rule it out either. So he says in verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And oh, by the way, according to verse 9, the whole nation of you, Judah's waywardness was not limited to just a few. The whole nation was guilty before him. So verse 10, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. This reference to storehouse, if you can imagine, it's this extended hallway with and divided by different rooms and cubicles for storage of tithes consisting of grain, wine, and oil. Not just money, but also food things. And then he says in verse 10, bring the full tithe. The full tithe. Or the whole tithe. It suggests that many were either withholding part of or bringing nothing at all. Some of you in here are very generous people and you give very sacrificially. And God knows that. Some of you are very generous, but many, many of you aren't. And many of you think that you are because you throw some cash in the offering plate here and there. This reference in verse 10 to bring the full tithe indicates that some of the people had the same mindset. They thought, well, I give some. Yeah, but you don't give all that you ought to. You're not bringing the full tithe. You just trickle a little bit down, you know, from the Starbucks fund at the end of the month if it's there. You say, well, I give. Yeah, but you're, you're holding back. You're robbing God. You're ripping Him off. And so He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. 
says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The purpose is to say that if Judah would return to him, if they would be faithful in their giving to God, God would be faithful in providing for them. He says, test me in this. Or as the ESV says, put me to the test. He urges and commands the people, hey, give me the opportunity. Like, I dare you. Give me the opportunity to prove myself. Be faithful in this area and see if I won't take care of you. See if I won't provide for you. And some of the people say, well, I, I thought we're not supposed to test God. So can you reconcile that? I say, sure, I can reconcile that. It is wrong to test God with things like complaining, rebellion, unbelief. We see that in passages like Exodus 17, Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78, Psalms 95, Psalms 106. However, it's not wrong to test him with obedience, especially when he commands it. Return to me. Like, I dare you to be faithful in your giving. Don't hold back. Say, I give. Yeah, you're holding back. I know you're holding back. I'm God. If only you will trust me. If only you'll be faithful in this area. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. And so at this point, some of you guys might have some questions. So I'm going to make some applications. But he continues this thought, and he says in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field. It shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. If you do this, I'll protect your crops. You'll have enough. And then in verse 12, it says, Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So you might have some questions. Because some of you, um, I'll just see. Um, how many of you guys grew up at church? And I'm include. Oh, let me finish. <laughs> Everyone was raising their hands. How many of you guys grew up at church and you were told God says to give 10% and so you need to tithe 10%? At least 40% of us. Anybody have no idea what I'm talking about? Okay, a couple people do. So, I need to break some things down to you. Because people say, all right, well, so I'm holding back, or maybe I'm not giving what I ought to give. And so naturally the question is, is well, what ought should I give? That didn't make any sense grammatically, I can know. <laughs> Did it, Megan? Okay. Um, and so... Normally, what's taught at church is that you give 10%. That's, that's, that's what's taught, because the word tithe literally means a tenth. And since the law, the Mosaic law, required that, certainly grace would require at least 10%. And yet the interesting thing is that the tithe is never actually mentioned in the New Testament in reference to the church. I thought it was interesting. In fact, in all the passages where the church is giving, there's never any mention at all of tithing. Now, I'm not against the idea of giving 10%. In fact, I think 10% is a great place to start. But what happens today in most churches is this. It's, well, we know that tithing is not New Testament giving, but man, if, if we don't push the tithe, the 10%, then man, we might not get enough money to meet they meet our needs. And so it's kind of like, all right, 10% giving, and it kind of keeps the money flowing in. So someone says, well, what's the problem with saying that God says to give 10%? Like, what's the problem with saying that God says to give 10%? Well, number one, he doesn't. Number two, it's not even biblical. Some of you guys are like, What? I got it. I got it. The other problem is this. In explaining that, well, it's a biblical thing and God says to give 10%, it also, I think, can hinder people 
by making them think that they're done. God says to give 10%. Oh, oh sure, there's 10% right there. Okay, what do I do now? Are you done? I'm done? Okay, okay I guess I'm done. It, it robs them and, and from thinking that they're actually done. Like, oh, I gave 10%, so, so I'm good to go. And so I think one of the questions that I want to answer is, talk about this thing tithing. Talk about giving. So, what did giving before the time of Moses look like? And this is a really important question that we need to answer because those who would disagree with what I'm saying would say that we should tithe 10% on that basis because the argument is, is that the tithe was before Moses. The tithe is before Moses. The tithe is before the Mosaic Law. And since Abraham tithed and Jacob tithed before the Mosaic Law, tithing was before Moses, came before the Law. Therefore, since it came before the Law, it would stand to reason that it exists after the Law. Thus, it's a universal principle, since the tithe came first. That would be the argument of someone disagreeing with what I have to say. That's what they would say. I want to be fair and balanced in here. The problem with this way of thinking is this. If you're going to accept anything as normative simply because it came before the law, then we need to also change some other things. We need to stop meeting on Sunday since the Sabbath was before the law. We need to reinstitute the sacrificial system because that actually started in the garden and that was before the law. So by that reasoning, we're going to need to go back to killing animals and I'm not really sure that's the good thing to do. So, you say, well, where are we going here? Well, Genesis 14, 20, I think, is a good point to start because that is the first mention of the tithe. Genesis 14, 20, there's a guy, his name's Abraham, kind of a big deal. At this point, his name is just Abram. And what happens in the story, I'll just summarize it for you, but it starts in Genesis 14, 20. Well, actually, earlier on, but it starts there in Genesis 14. Abraham goes out, or Abram, I should say. He just goes, he fights these kings, kills them, takes a whole bunch of loot, takes a whole bunch of plunder, takes a whole bunch of treasure, and then on his way back, he runs into the king of Salem. Salem is the ancient name for Jerusalem. And the king of Salem was a man named Melchizedek, who was not only a king, but according to the book of Hebrews, he's also a priest. And it says that, in verse 18, that he was a king and a priest to the Most High God. So when Abram sees the man who represents God, well, he wants to express his thanks to God for the victory. So what does he do? Well, verse 20, it says at the end of the verse, he gave him a tenth of all that he had. Now, notice that it doesn't say that God told him to do this. He's not commanded to give a tenth. And also interesting is that it doesn't even mean necessarily a tenth of all that he owned. He gave a tenth of something that he took in battle. Another interesting thought is Abraham lived 160 years, and at no time in Scripture is it ever recorded before or after this incident that he ever gave a tenth. This is the only time he ever gave a tenth that we know of in his 160-year life. And it indicates something to us that this wasn't a tenth of his income, it wasn't a tenth annually, he just simply chose to do it. And some of you at this point are like, man, I can't wait to tell mom and dad about this, sound, this sermon on SoundCloud because we're going to have so much extra money movies, or I'm going to have so much extra money to go take a girl on a date. Well, you'd have to have a girl first, but you get the idea. So, oh, man, some of you haters in here. So let's follow history. Let's see what happens next. So we fast forward to the 47th chapter of Genesis in the 24th verse. At this time, Joseph, you know, the dude with the coat of many colors, he's in Egypt. At this time, he's a big deal. And so what we see here is very interesting because God expresses through Joseph that the people were to give one-fifth of all they had to Pharaoh. I'll read Genesis 47, 24. And I think it's here that it creates a sort of precedent for the, the people of Judah, people of Israel. And at the harvest, Genesis 47, 24, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. This was required. 
And we see it instituted in a civic way after the people leave Egypt and slavery after the law is established. And so the first thing that we see after what I think is the precedent here is we see a 10% tithe for the Levites. The priest, they did all the religious spiritual stuff. Okay, so the people were told that they had to give 10%. And a lot of people say, well, why do we give 10%? Because pastors and priests, they're kind of similar. Yeah, no, um, I, I have less civic responsibilities than the priest would have had because Israel was a theocracy. But yeah, there, uh, I get the general idea. There's some similarities and also some differences. So a lot of people say, well, there's the 10%. That's the basis. That makes sense. So the emphasis there with the 10% for the Levites is on quantity because that amount already belonged to God. Like you're robbing him if you don't give that amount. That's what Malachi says. You're robbing me if you don't give that. It's already mine. And so the people would give 10% to help the Levites. That was what they were told to do because the Levites, that was their full-time job. Their full-time responsibility was not only to help run the government, but the spiritual aspect as well. And they didn't have any like other part-time job to support themselves, so they'd come, they'd give 10%, and that's what they would do. And so many people think, well... Yeah, I can see the comparison, the similarities, pastors, Levites, sort of. Okay. And so, I think there's an application to be made here. And the application is this. Is, well, that means that we should give 10%. We should take care of the church. We should provide for the pastors. I'm not against that idea. But I want you to see it biblically. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, this is what Paul says. He says, actually, you know what? Before I go to that verse, I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 9, 14. 1 Corinthians 9, 14 says, In the same way the Lord commanded, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. If that's your job, proclaiming the gospel, you should get your living by the gospel. Paul continues this way of thinking in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. He says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And in the context for Paul here, this means don't make your pastors moonlight and then say, Well, your wife can just get them caught up. And a lot of people say that. Well, you just work a second job or a third job or a fourth job, and you have your wife work, and, and she'll get you caught up. Because I think there's some applications that we need to make here. I, I talked to a friend of mine, it was probably about a year and a half ago, and I was talking about Lynchburg City Church and what we're doing here, and it's awesome, and, and I was saying, yeah, like we definitely have some needs to be met at the church. Many of you guys know that we've got to start paying rent if we want to stay here on 1 April, otherwise we can't meet here anymore, um, and that the rent that we're going to have to pay is going to double our operating budget ultimately, and no one here gets paid. And so I remember talking to a friend of mine well over a year ago. And I was saying, yeah, there's a lot of needs here financially. I'm like, I don't, I don't get paid anything. And this person, of course, they say, well, Paul was a tent maker, so you just need to take a second job. I said, okay. Um, I was trying to explain to this person. I said, well, I said, I, I do. I actually am an Army Reserve chaplain, but it's just a, it's just a little bit of, of income. So, well, maybe you need to take a third job. I said, well, I actually do. I, I have a real estate license, and, but that's commission only, only when I actually sell something. So they said, well, you know, Joe, you really shouldn't be that lazy. You know, um, maybe you should take a fourth job at Walmart or McDonald's if you need money, or a fifth job. And I said, well, I said, God, help me. <laughs> I wanted to punch this person in the face. Um, and I was like, there's not enough hours in the week. And like, well, all you do is put together a sermon. I was like, okay, well, I know, right? I wanted to punch him in the... F I was like, help me, Jesus! Whew. And that's because that's that's they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't, they didn't know. They don't know what pastors do. They don't, they don't know all the fires during the week they're putting out. And, of course, their response is always, well, Paul was a tent maker, so there you go. I would argue, 
Paul justified his tent making by almost saying that he was disobeying Jesus. You read texts like 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, he justifies his tent making by almost saying that he was disobeying Jesus in light of the other texts that he's saying. And he did this only because he loved the Corinthians so much, he was so worried about them that they might say that he was mooshing off of them and thus discredit his entire ministry. This isn't what he wants pastors to do. He wants his churches to take care of your pastors. Churches, pay your pastors what they need. And here's the question. Need for what? Pay your pastors what they need for a jet? Mr. Creflo Dollar, can I have your $65 million to buy a jet? I already got a private plane. I want to upgrade to the Gulfstream G650, whatever class it is. Can I have your, your $65 million to do that? I don't think so. No, you may not have that. And it's because of abuses like that that when this topic of money gets brought up, people don't always like to hear about it because it's abused. The church abuses it sometimes. So, Paul is clear. He wants churches to pay their pastors, pay them what they need to have what. This is what I think is great advice. I don't think we should try to make our pastors rich, nor do I think we should try to keep them poor. I do not think we should try to make our pastors rich, nor do I think we should try to keep them poor. But it gets abused. It gets abused. Josh, you get paid here? No, you don't. Some of you know about the worship leader in Lynchburg who makes over $100,000 a year. You know about one of the pastors in the area who just finished building a $2.7 million house. And see, that's why people get upset. I don't think we should try to make our pastors rich, nor do I think we should try to keep them poor. You say, well, give me something. I think a great starting point is, what's the average income in that town or city? What's the medium income? Lynchburg.gov, what is that? I think whatever that is, that's a great starting place. But you try to, to, to give that to a pastor in Fort Lauderdale, or my home state of Alaska in Anchorage, when cost of living is 44% higher than Lynchburg, or midtown Manhattan, that's not going to work. So I do think you, you need to crunch the numbers and look at, well, what does it cost to have a modest lifestyle there? We should not try to make our pastors rich, nor should we try to keep them poor. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 5. He wants pastors to get paid. And so many of you, you say, well, here's the 10%. You've made your case, Joe. We've got to meet this need. We need to meet this need. But hold on a second. We're not done. Because when you read Deuteronomy chapter 12, you find a second tithe in verses 6 to 17. They had 10% for the Levites, and now in Deuteronomy 12, they've got to bring another 10% that was to be taken to Jerusalem and eaten, eaten by family, friends, servants, priests. It wasn't a frivolous thing. It was a very purposeful thing. It was to stimulate devotion to God. It was a kind of national potluck day, you might say. So everyone would come and they'd share what they have. And so keep in mind, the people, they've already given 10%, and now they've given another 10%. I'm not a math genius, but that's 20%. Oh, and we're not done yet. Because then you read in Deuteronomy 14, just a, a little bit further, and you read Deuteronomy 14, 28, and it says this. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. This is what was called a poor tithe. So in the third year, they would have to bring another 10%. Or if you're crunching that annually, that's... Three and a third percent. So ten percent for the Levites, ten percent for the festival, and then three and a third percent for the poor. So yeah, when someone comes, they say, "Yeah, the Jews they gave ten percent. That's what God commanded them to do." That just isn't true. They gave twenty-three percent just to start with. 
Of course, my premise was, um, we don't know our Bible. We don't know what it says. We know John 3.16 and that's it. Jesus loves you, that's awesome. We don't know what the Bible says. And, uh, oh, by the way, in Leviticus 19, this is really interesting. So when they'd go out and they'd harvest their fields, they weren't allowed to harvest the corners of their field. They couldn't take that for themselves. And when they're gathering everything, if they dropped anything on the ground, they had to leave that there for the poor to be able to come in. And that was like a social program for the poor. That's how they took care of them. And then, oh, by the way, there's also a temple tax they have to pay. And then, oh, by the way, in Exodus 23, every seven years, they had to give the land a Sabbath. So they forfeited all the earnings, all the profit, every seventh year. Like some of you, you get upset when Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. Imagine if once every seven years, they're shut down for the whole year. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and oh, by the way, another thing, on that same Sabbath year, they had to set aside all debts. So you see the problem with saying, oh, 10%, that's the biblical mandate that we see. You're like, no, Mom, you should listen to this sermon on SoundCloud because it just happened tonight. Like, I, I just, we learned Bible. And oh, by the way, guys, this was required giving. And we're still not done. Because we haven't even mentioned free will giving. Just to give. Like you see, see someone, they set up outside the vine, they're doing a missions trip, you just feel like, I want to give. Okay, we haven't even talked about that yet. Numbers 18.12. Numbers 18.12, it explains that this is what they would do. And I love this, it's a really cool story. So they would go and they would collect from the harvest the very, very best that they had. And then they'd take it and they'd give it to God. And the really cool thing about this is... It's so beautiful. They wouldn't know how much harvest they'd pull in. So they, they would just go, all right, this is the best. I'm going to take the best. Go give it to the Lord. And they wouldn't know how much they'd have left over. This would be akin to someone who they see their paycheck. They're like, you know what? Before we do anything, before we take out all right, Social Security or FICA or this or this state tax or whatever, I'm just going to give like right off the gross. I'm just going to give it to God. You say, I haven't crunched the numbers yet. I know. I haven't paid the bills yet. I know. It's hard. My mom taught me this as a, as, a, as a single mom in a state where the cost of living is almost half, almost 50% as what it is in Lynchburg. That's what she'd do. I'm just going to give right off the gross. Like This is what they would do in Numbers 18. They'd come, they'd harvest, they'd take the very, very best, they, and they'd go and take it. You say, well, you don't know how much you're going to have left. What if there's not enough left? And they said, that's okay because we trust God because he's going to provide for us because he is faithful. And it is very much a trust thing. Remember the difference in Malachi? The story we've been talking about? God's saying, I'm not happy with you. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to be a witness against you. I'm going to drop the hammer on you. Because you bring me the blind and the lame. You bring me the worst of what you've got. You keep the best for yourself. And you forfeited the blessing for you. See, it's not giving God your best when you spend all the money on yourself and then you sock some away into savings and then you pull that money out for the Walmart fund or the Starbucks fund or the Netflix fund or the Hulu fund and then, okay, oh, we didn't use all the Starbucks fund this month. Okay, I guess I can trickle a little bit down to God. That's not giving Him your best. It's not. Don't kid yourself into thinking that is. It's insulting when you think about it. Because everything that you have already belongs to Him. And that's exactly what's happening here. You're robbing God. You're ripping God off. So you say, what does God want? Glad you asked. Exodus 35.4, Moses, he speaks to the congregation and the children of Israel. And here's what he says. Take from you among an offering. Well, how much? 10%? No, just whoever has a willing heart. Just bring it. Then verse 21 of Exodus 35. And they came, everyone whose heart had stirred him up. Everyone who had a willing spirit, they brought an offering to the Lord. And then Exodus 35.22. And they came, men and women, as many who had a willing heart. You get the idea of what God's really after? He's after a willing heart. That's what he's after. 
Exodus 36.5, and they spoke to Moses. I love this story. Exodus 36.5, they spoke to Moses, and they told him, hey, listen, um, so we took the offering, and the people actually brought too much. Like, isn't that awesome? They brought too much. And then Moses, he gives a command. He says, okay, well, um, this is what I want you to say. Tell everybody, tell everybody here, men, women, everyone, tell them to restrain from bringing any more. I mean, when was the last time at church and they said, hey, guys, listen, you guys brought too much money last week, so tonight, don't give anything. We, we met all our needs last week, so we're good. That's what happened here. That's what happened in Exodus 36.5. And so at this point, you say, well, what about the New Testament? Come on, I'm a New Testament guy. What about the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. Hebrews 13.16. It says this. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You want to please God? Anybody in here want to please God? Cool. Like 70% of you. Hope the other 30% of you catch up with this. Pleasing God is a good thing. I want you to want to please God. So what does he say? What pleases God? Well, you read the text. A giving sacrifice. That's why I say 10%. I'm not against the idea. I'm against saying God commands it. And saying, well, that's biblical. I think 10% is a great place to start. But for some people, giving 10% isn't hard. It's not hard. It's like, that's how much they have set aside to spend on toilet paper for, for the month. Like, who needs that much toilet paper, right? <laughs> and then people, oftentimes, they tell me this. Oh, my goodness. I hear this all the time. Um, people say, well, you know, if I had more money, I'd give more money. Let me be really clear. Giving is not a matter of what you have. I'm going to illustrate that. Giving's not a matter of what you have. People say, oh, if I had more money, I'd give more money. That's just not true. So, some of these ideas I'm telling you tonight, I first heard them from John MacArthur. Uh, I was reading through his New Testament commentary in Corinthians, and it, I heard this a couple of years ago, it just kind of blew my mind, and so I've listened to multiple of his sermons on giving. Uh, he just really has a way of injecting the Bible like into my bloodstream, so it's awesome. And so he tells a story to illustrate this point. He says, uh, a pastor goes to a farmer and he says, Farmer, if you had $500, would you get half of it to the Lord? The farmer says, Pastor, I, I would give half of it to the Lord. The pastor says, Farmer, let's say you only have $250. Would you give half to the Lord? He says, Pastor, I would give half to the Lord. He says, Farmer, if you only had $100. Would you get half of it to the Lord? He says, I would give half of it to the Lord if I had it, Pastor. And the pastor says to the farmer, If you had two pigs, would you give one to the Lord? And the farmer says, Pastor, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. People say that. Oh man, if I only had more, I'd give more. Not not true. Especially when you read texts like Luke 16.10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. If you're not giving sacrificially with what you have right now, you wouldn't give sacrificially if you had more. That's what he's trying to say here. The one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And then you see this illustrated in such an amazing, beautiful, powerful way in 2 Corinthians 8 with Macedonian Christians. They said this in verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In other words, they didn't have very much at all, but man, they were really, really generous. And then he gives us the answer partially in verse 5 about where this generosity came from. He says, and this, not as we expected. We were completely caught off guard by these Macedonian Christians because they don't have much at all. They're like poor college students living in Lynchburg. And they, I don't know how this happened, but it did because, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. It's not a matter of what you have. It's a matter of the heart. What God is after is a willing, sacrificial heart. They gave themselves First, to the Lord. It wasn't like, all right, first thing, i got to pay this bill, this bill, this bill, this bill. Okay, now I've got something left over. Now I'll give that to God. And I think from that, we see how giving is also to be planned. You said planned? No, spontaneous. Just, you know, however the Spirit leads you. 
Let me be clear here. Let me show you what 1 Corinthians 16 says. Giving is to be planned. Now, concerning the collection of the saints, this is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. You might say, man, I don't like that. I don't like that. It should be wherever the Spirit leads because, you know, we have a tendency to throw around these cliche sound bites that we heard from some Hillsong concert or something. Not, I, I like Hillsong, but, but we do it. We just throw these little sound bites. And so giving is also to be planned. And you say, well, I don't give my money. I just give my time and I just give my talent. That's what I do. The problem with that, that doesn't teach you stewardship of your money. And I know it's hard. I know many of you struggle. And what I'm saying is hard. But in saying that I just give my time or my ideas, it doesn't teach you the stewardship of your money. And I would not be a good leader if I myself was not doing this. And I want you to know that for the first two years that we had Lynchburg City Church, I did not give any money to the church. Because I thought, well, I'm not getting paid. I'm working 40 hours a week. I don't get health care. I don't get retirement. I'm not getting paid. So technically, I give 100%. And then my wife came to me, and she'd been praying about it, and she said, I really think we should be giving. It took the phrase 110% to an entirely new meaning at that point. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And I would not be a good leader if I did not, if I asked you to do something I myself was not willing to, to do. I, we, I, we don't, the Decreon family is not independently wealthy. We do not have much. But I want to be like the people in the stories that I'm telling you. And so I think giving is to be planned. Some of you, this is hard because you're like, I just, I have such a hard time. I said, plan it. Take that money, put it away in an envelope. Take that money, set it aside. Do that. Have a separate account. Do whatever you need to do. Planning's not a bad thing. But I also want to remind you of this. I think what you give should be personally determined by you in prayer, through prayer. Because I look at a story like Zacchaeus, or excuse me, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You guys know the story of Zacchaeus? Yeah. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was tea. Kind of pitchy there. We got to work on that. Got to work on that. But so after he meets Jesus and they get everything worked out, Zacchaeus is like, listen, I'm going to give half of everything I had away. And oh, by the way, if I like screwed anyone over, I'm going to give them 400%. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. Hey, Zacchaeus, I know you're new to the whole Christianity thing, but you don't need to give that much. We only do 10%. Like, Jesus doesn't say that to Zacchaeus. Like, why rob Zacchaeus of that blessing? To give more. To give sacrificially. To give out of a willing heart. And you say, a lot of people will say, man, you're going to be in big trouble if you give half of what you have away. Man, you're going to be in big trouble. And a lot of you, you're like, man, this, I like, a lot of you like that part. When I say giving should be personally determined by you, because you're like, well, if Zacchaeus can give more, then certainly I could personally determine to give less. Maybe that's how your mind works. And I would tell you that if that's you, and the, and the moment that I say that, giving is personally determined, you're thinking, whew, well, I can give 5% or 4% or 3 or 2 or 1, or I can give half a percent, I'm still giving. I've personally determined that. I worked that out with God. If that's you right now, then I would say that you're probably a lot more like these people who are ripping off God than you even realize. If your first inclination, when I say that giving is personally determined, you're thinking, how can I be as cheap as possible with the Lord? And I would say that when I held up this mirror and I had you look inside of it, I had you look at this, that you were looking and staring at yourself. If that's your mindset, like how can I be as cheap and skim off as much as possible and keep as much as possible for myself, then you've missed everything that I've talked about so far. But let me encourage you. 
because I've, I've been hard. So let me encourage you. Philippians 4.18. Oh, guys, this is a beautiful passage. Paul, he's just received a lot of money from the Philippians and he's super thankful and he says this, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Awesome! Awesome! They gave a willing sacrifice. And in the following verse he says this, Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in His glory in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? He will supply all your needs according to His riches. I'm not saying, oh, you give sacrificially, you give till it hurts, and He'll give you back a hundredfold, or He'll give you that car, or He'll give you that relationship, or He'll give you whatever. I'm not Joel Osteen, okay? I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that our God will supply every need, not want, every need, that if you would be faithful, that you would give with a willing, sacrificial heart, He will take care of you. Not He'll give you everything you want, He'll provide every need that you have. Be encouraged by that, church. Let me pray for you, Jesus I pray that you would make us a generous people. I pray that you would give us a willing heart. That we would stop robbing you. That we would stop ripping you off. That we would stop withholding, giving you what we ought to give. That we would be like the Macedonian Christians and they had so very little and yet they gave so sacrificially and so generously. Oh, that we might be like them. And so I pray, as St. Augustine would pray so long ago, Lord, command what you give and give what you command. Enable us to do the things that you've asked us and commanded us to do. I don't want to be a stingy person. I don't want to be a greedy person. I want to be a cheerful giver, a generous giver. I want to give sacrificially. Like the people in Numbers 18, when they took the very best of the harvest, they didn't know how much harvest was going to be left over, but they trusted you. That if they were faithful to you, that you would be faithful and provide for them. Make us like them, Jesus. Amen.